Mac Power Users, Episode 440, Workflows with Tom Zoller. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David. Hey, Katie. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. I'm very excited. We have got a, a great episode for the folks today. We are back in the saddle once again after some uh, you've been overseas and back, and uh, it seems like it's been a while since we've done this, so I'm always happy to record with you. Yeah, it's fun to get back behind the mic, isn't it? Yeah, and, and today our guest is our pal, Tom Zoller. Hello, how are you guys? Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. Um, you are an artist, and I know Daisy is going to be particularly excited, I think, about this episode, David. Did, did she coordinate this for us? <laughs> no, but she uh, I, she's finally impressed, okay. I'm just going to say. I haven't told her yet till Tom comes on, then, then my wife will be impressed with me once for once. <laughs> I'm glad to do what I can. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, Tom, well, Tom is a comic book artist primarily. Is that how you describe yourself, Tom? Yeah, usually I say cartoonist because it kind of lumps in writing and drawing. And that's the thing that makes you such a fascinating guess is we've had artists on the show before, but you are like the whole enchilada. Uh, Tom comes up with ideas for uh, these books. Uh, some of them are his own that he, in he independently creates. The others are ones that he creates for uh, big brands and companies. And then he uh, writes the story. He draws the story. He puts the production together. He does the whole thing. And and he runs a successful business on top of it all. And it just makes you a great guest for Mac Power Users. Um, Tom was a guest recently on Free Agents, and we were talking about kind of the hippie part of what he does. But when I got listening to how deep Tom goes down the stack with the Mac and the iOS stuff to get his work done, I knew we had to have him on the Mac Power Users, too. So So thanks, Tom, for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. So, Tom, let's let's start a little bit by talking um, about how you got into this. Have you always used a Mac or are you new to the Mac or did you start using the Mac in college? How did you become to be a Mac power user? Uh, I got into Mac right after college. When I went to art school, we didn't have much of a computer program at that point. I went to school 89 to 92, so it was the cusp of computers coming into comic book production. But my first experience was actually going to Kinko's and renting one of their Macs and using that to type up resumes for looking for work. And then eventually my aunt loaned me the money to get, I think it was an LC3. It was one of the one of the Office Max versions when when they fragmented everything. And that was the, the first Mac I got, but I, I never looked back after that. Yeah, um, and I, we should explain, before we get into the hardware, the reason Daisy's going to be impressed is, in addition to making his own stuff, like uh, comics like Warning Label, uh, Cupid's Arrow coming up. Uh, Tom also does like big names like uh, Little Ponies, My Little Ponies, and of course the Disney Zoom Zooms. And I just have to say that Disney Zoom Zooms take a very big place in my wife's life. I, I don't, I can't really explain why, but she loves that iPhone game more than life itself. I I will wake up at three in the morning because you know how you sense when there's like a light on in the room and you just wake up, and she's just laying in bed playing Zoom Zooms. Yeah, you know? so. I can't wait to get her your, and Tom's working on the Zoom Zoom comic, so I can't wait to get her that. Yeah. It, it's an addictive game. That's why I don't have it on my iPhone. All right. Can, yeah. can I ask a, a, a basic question? Yeah. Yeah. What is a Zoom Zoom? If you don't know, we can't share it with you, Katie, honestly. <laughs> it's it's like a secret. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you got to do some research on that one. I mean, I do know <laughs> what a My Little Pony is because I, you know, grew up in the 70s and 80s, but I, I'm not sure what a Zoom Zoom is. 
I'm going to get you a Zoom Zoom. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but next time we see each other, I'm going to have a Zoom Zoom for you. <laughs> I'll Google it. It's fine. Yeah, okay. Well, you can. They're they're kind of cute. But anyway, uh, I think they've got that thing in the game where, you know, that terrible thing where they set a timer before you can play again unless you give them money. And she's not going to give them money, so she just has to wait for her timer to go off. But she's a, a Zoom Zoom expert. <laughs> and Tom is the artist for it. Uh, anyway, uh, so as Katie was saying, so Tom, uh, in addition to being an artist, is, has moved into the Mac world. And you've been using that for your production, uh, not only for the stuff you're doing for Disney, but for the stuff you're doing on your own, which is, is quite impressive as well. And uh, what? so you started, you know, with the, uh, what was it, the Office Max Mac? Yeah, <laughs> the, the, uh, the LC3. Yeah. Or no, no, I'm sorry. That was the Performer 450, which was the LC. That's what it was. So you've been doing it for a while. But what is the gear you're using these days? I mean, we're going to talk in the show about you as an artist and a writer and a businessman. But but what's the underlying Apple hardware you're using to, to kind of keep the motors running at this point? All right. So right now in my studio, I have a 2013 iMac. Uh, it's hooked up to a, a Cintiq 22-inch HD. Uh, on top of that, I've got um, I've got a Drobo attached to it. I've got a bunch of hard drives attached to it. I have a Razer Tartarus keypad. It's a gaming keypad. That's attached so that uh, when I'm drawing, I can draw with my right hand and I can enter in Photoshop or... Um, Clip Studio Paint commands really quickly because it's mapped to certain common uses that I have, so I don't have to take my hand off the off the Cintiq so that I can execute other commands, which has sped me up immensely. I know a lot of artists do that. They get that. They get a, an external, for lack of it's like a little mini keyboard. Uh, gamers use it to you know to punch keyboard combinations with just one tap. So when they're gaming, they can access resources or change weapons or whatever as quick as possible. Um, and I know a lot of artists use them for the purpose that you're explaining. So you're not using it to change your weapons load in your game. You're, you're using it to change your brush in like Photoshop, right? Well, the pen is mightier than the sword. So I guess technically it's a weapon, but yes. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but okay. So here's the part I don't understand. Why don't you just use the, the regular keyboard for that? The advantage I find is that there, the one I have has, I think about 20 keys plus, um, a scroll wheel or it's got a, d-pad eight pin controller uh so i have that set to zoom and zoom in and zoom out and it becomes it's so much easier to have it in the space that i have on the on the left side of the cintiq because there's not a lot of room for it and because every key does something specific and oh and because i can map single keys to multiple keystroke functions so i have a command to do this expanded fill where i use the magic wand and select an area and then expand it by two pixels so that the color goes underneath the black line art which is something you need to do for registration but on the way i have it set up that's uh command shift f6 but on the gaming pad it is it's the upper right hand key i think it's f5 um what i did was when i started really trying to use it i just every time i did a drawing i assigned another key in the row because i figured that that was help is very tempting to try to establish the entire, oh, these are the commands I need, and I'm going to assign all these keys, but you won't remember which key is which. 
but when you assign them in the order that you use them, it's also kind of in the, it defaults to the frequency that you use them. So you've kind of established like your first and second key before you have to establish a third key. And it becomes easier to train your muscle memory to remember where those, where those strokes are. If that makes any sense. No, you know, I'm listening to you. I'm thinking actually you're kind of scripting. You're, you're running multiple commands and you're just using the keyboard as a trigger mechanism for it. Yeah. And it's, it's taking, like I can, I can attach a Photoshop action to it so I can get as complicated or as uncomplicated as I want with it. So some are simple commands like fill. Some of them are more complicated scripts that I need to run on a regular basis. This almost sounds kind of like David, like what you have in some degree programmed better touch tool to do with your touchpad. Yeah. Yeah. But this is probably uh, deeper because you've got more keys. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's a tactile, it's a physical um, keypad. So it's easier for me to find where my fingers are supposed to go on it. It's kind of the way that you have those bumps on the keys on the, what is it? The F and the J where, because it's physical, I don't have to look at it. In fact, I, I can't remember the last time I've had to look at it. Yeah. I've got this whole thing with screen flow and, and to a lesser degree, final cut where I can use a regular keyboard and there's all these keyboard things I do with it, but they're not, they're not chained commands. They're, you know, it's like I use it to, um, you know, ripple delete and do things like that, but it's not chained commands what you're doing. I, I can see now what the difference is, is you're running sequences of commands in addition to just single, um, macros. Yeah. Or, you know, just commands that require too many keys for one hand to use sometimes. And how do you just just for those of us that are artists, what does your setup look like? I mean, do you keep the razor to the left or the right of your keyboard? How how is it all set set up? So I have an L shaped desk. Um, if looking at my window is north, which it probably isn't, but I'm bad at directions. Um, the iMac is in front of me at north, and at west is the Cintiq. So I have to rotate my chair 90 degrees to switch to the Cintiq. And then immediately to the left of the Cintiq is the gaming pad. Um, and then between the two of them and the space between the two monitors is a brother MFC uh, printer that'll print 11 by 17 and it will take Bristol so I can run uh, illustration paper through it. All right. Yeah. You know, we got, we should try and talk Tom into putting a picture into the MPU uh, um, discussion forum, because I, I do think it's interesting. I love seeing workspaces and for an artist, I think it would be particularly interesting. Oh, I can definitely do that. We're going to, um, I want to talk about your other Mac stuff, but you also mentioned quickly, you had a Cintiq and I know what that is, but I'm sure a lot of people out there don't. Can you explain the Cintiq for the listeners? Sure. The Cintiq is a drawing tablet. Um, but the specific thing about this, the Wacom Cintiq is that you can draw directly on the screen. Um, there's a little bit of, I guess I call it parallax where there's a space between your, your pen and the monitor but once you get used to it it's like it's not there but you're not right on top of it the way you are on like an ipad pro but i can draw directly on the screen so i'm not doing a tablet that matches a movement to a screen above me it's just all integrated in one yeah it's just like if you put um if you took a, a wacom tablet and enameled it to an lcd screen so you're drawing right on top of it and and yours, you were telling me in the pre-interview that you also use it as a secondary monitor. Yes. Uh, the way the one I have is set up is it, it sits like a regular monitor, and then there are a couple handle locks on the sides. And when I 
engage those, I can drop it down at an angle and it's a customizable angle. So it's not, it doesn't come in at just like 45 degrees, but I can make it whatever angle I specifically want it to. But then it becomes much more like a drawing table. Um, because when you're drawing, you want to keep your drawing surface at 90 degrees parallel or not parallel, 90 degrees, right angle to your eyes, because that keeps the drawing from distorting. Because if you were, if you're drawing on a flat surface and you're not directly above it, the things that are farther away seem farther away. So you wind up stretching it a little bit. So for the truest thing, you want your eyes at a 90 degree angle from your, from your drawing surface or your monitor in this case. So I can bring it down at that angle and I can just start drawing. Now, um, this is really, you know, Apple, I'm sorry, Microsoft makes the Surface, um, is a Surface Pro, I think they call it. It looks like an iMac, but it's got a big hinge in it, and it can angle down to like a drafting table. I don't know if you've seen that computer. I've seen it. I haven't, uh, I haven't played around with it too much. Yeah, I, I know there are a lot of artists that like that computer, but this actually predates that, right? Yeah, the Cintiq's been around for for a long time. The first time I ever got my hands on one, I think it was like 2008, and then... I bought the one I have in 2012 and I haven't looked back. Yeah. I, I saw them for the first time at Macworld ages ago and they are really useful for, for artists. But I guess the question I always had is, is that, is there a use for that for non-artists? Like if there's users out there that wish they had kind of the Microsoft big screen that they could tilt down with a Mac operating system. Have you ever tried to use it just as a Mac? I haven't. I, there are times I've used it straight up as a Mac where I was out in LA for a while and I had just um, just the Cintiq running on an old G5 cheese grater, which was the computer I had at the time. Um, so that worked out okay. I missed having the second screen because I do like the real estate. Uh, if I was doing something that was a um, that the, the interface was more tactile, like I, I think I've used it sometimes that I've ed edited video but I don't do it enough to have to mess around with that. But something where you can use the pen to to grab the individual chunks of scenes and move them around, that might work for it. But I I can't think of another use case that's quite as on point as drawing. Yeah, and I also can't help but feel like that um, you know the operating system itself is not made for that. So like the touch targets would be very small it could get pretty tedious, but, but it's interesting because just looking at the website, they make them up to 27 inches. Now I didn't realize how big they got. Yeah. They've gotten huge. And, uh, I think, uh, there's some that are, are touch screens as well. Not all of them. I've, the last time I checked with someone on that, there's a little bit of latency issue with the touchscreen ones. I don't know if that's been fixed or if it's different or if you just get used to it, but, um, the one I've had, I've had for about five years and I'm, I'm going to ride this out until it falls apart at this point. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, they aren't cheap either. I'm sure they're, they're quite expensive. That's true too. We're going to talk more about your art stuff later, but just in general, as someone who started in this business with paper and pencil and it's gone to digital, what are the big differences to you at this point? It has given me a flexibility that I wouldn't have had when I graduated. Uh, the big, the big thing I've noticed is in terms of production, especially color, because if you wanted to do a color comic book in the 80s and 90s, you had to pay someone to do the color separations and break your color down into cyan, yellow, magenta, and black to make up the component colors. That's why comic books traditionally were fairly flat color because someone's got to figure out 
what those screens are or you have to scan the art in in a different way and back then it was like putting your art on a drum scanner and trying to get things to line up and it was but now because i can generate a photoshop file that has all that information in it i don't have to have anyone else involved with it so when it the first color comic i did was love and capes and i would not have been able to do that five years before interesting so what about the rest of your Apple gear? What else you got? Oh, uh, I've got the iPad Pro. Uh, I love that thing. Uh, use the Apple Pencil with it. I have um, I have an iPhone 8. I still have an iPod. I don't use it quite as much, but I like having my music physically present um, because I don't always have access to internet when I'm in the car or in an airplane. Uh, so I miss not having, you know... I. I like the cloud and I like being able to pull down music when I can, but I also like just having it there and having it live in the car. Uh, and I think I, I've, I mean, I've gone through, Oh, and I've got a 2015 uh, MacBook pro. That's my laptop that I bring with me to shows. And I use to write um, because I, I tend to write offsite. Uh, there are less distractions. So I'll go up to Panera or Starbucks and write up there. Yeah. Well, that's quite a bit of gear, Tom. Yeah. Uh, it can get heavy. <laughs> You opted for the iPhone 8 um, over the iPhone 10. What what was your decision-making in that process? Uh, money was the big thing. Okay. Um, yeah. But the other thing is, for the most part, uh, the iPad Pro being the notable exception, uh, pioneers take the arrows, and I'll let somebody else <laughs> test all the stuff. It's because there's stuff I have that's mission critical that I, you know, I don't want to have the flaky version of the iPhone. I'll get the the slightly more solid version because I live on it at conventions. That I just I, I'm glad they do it, and I appreciate people who who take that risk. But I didn't. There were no features on the iPhone 10 that were so fantastic that I felt like I needed to have it in my in my life right now. Tom, I've I've taken so many arrows over the years. <laughs> So many arrows. <laughs> uh, most of them I shoot at myself by installing betas and doing stupid things. But anyway, uh, how does it fit? What's your uh, balance between Mac and iOS in general? Uh, I'm probably 75, 80% Mac uh, and then the rest on iOS. Um, the way I tend to view the iPad Pro is that it's an 80% machine. And by that, I mean that I do about... I can get 80% of a job done on that using um, the program I use there for the most part is Procreate. Uh, when I was doing warning label, there were lots of times that I was drawing the book on the road. But the problem I have with the iPad Pro is that I think it's actually too, it has too much fidelity to my line. So I know what compromises to make when I'm drawing on the Cintiq to make the Cintiq look like what it looks like when I ink by hand. With the iPad Pro, it's so precise that I haven't figured out that conversion, how to make the pen do the thing that I know how to make a brush do. But I could do essentially my tight pencils and get it to the point that I could export the files to my Mac when I got home and then just ink everything. And it saves me a lot of time. So because there are times where I'm on the road for a week or two just for conventions or other reasons. And it's just easier to it, it keeps you from losing all that time as work. I can get a lot of stuff done and then take it over the finish line when I get home. It's interesting, though, that it's just so the problem isn't that it's not up to the task, but it, it performs the task in a different way than you're used to. Yeah, and it's learning a different type of muscle memory. And 
the thing I found is that if you want to do it, you have to you have to make yourself do it. When I when I was learning Clip Studio Paint and in my head, it used to be called Manga Studio and it was such a better name. And, and I keep lapsing back and I have to translate and remember what it's called. When I was learning that program and learning the, uh, the keypad system, I gave myself an assignment that every day I was going to draw some superhero and post it online. So there was accountability, but it was a small assignment, but it was enough to teach me how to use it and start figuring out how the processes worked. Because the, the thing you work against, especially with the, the margins that I'm running on, the amount of work that I'm trying to generate, that there might be a better program for what I need to do to get done. But the learning curve on it is going to cost me time and money. And I would rather stick with the thing that I know. You know, it's the thing that I know how to use and, and get done. And that's faster than learning a new thing. So it's, it's hard to figure out how to integrate that new thing into my process. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to start a podcast ever. You can record a high-quality podcast, host unlimited episodes, and distribute everywhere with just one click. And it's completely free. Anchor's app has some of the most innovative features around, like getting voice messages from your listeners that you can integrate to your show, the ability to simply transcribe segments, turning them into videos that you can share, you can add audio transitions and background tracks, and they even feature detailed analytics so you can see how many people are checking out your show. Plus, Anchor just rolled out the ability to record with up to seven friends anywhere in the world, and their audio quality is seriously good. You'll get high bitrate stereo sound. Basically, your episodes will sound really, really great. And for all of you iPad content creators, Anchor's iPad app offers easy editing tools, multitasking support, and the ability to drag audio in from other apps. So go to anchor.fm slash Mac to find out more about what Anchor can do for your new podcast. And if you sign up there, your show could be featured by us in a future ad. That's anchor.fm slash Mac. Go there now and start your podcasting journey today. Our thanks to Anchor for their support of this show and for giving aspiring podcasters an easy way to get started. So we've talked uh, quite a bit about uh, some of the technology that you're you're using in your office, but let's let's talk a little bit about um, you as an artist and how you're still doing all of your drawing. You you talked a little bit about doing a lot of that by hand. Kind of walk us through that process. Sure. Uh, well, comic books, uh, because of the way they were produced, you had someone who did the art in pencil. And then that was given to someone who did something that looked like inking, but there's a lot more, or it looked like tracing, but there's a lot more to it called inking, where they convert it from a pencil drawing to a black and white line drawing that was able to be reproduced. Uh, it was given to a colorist, it was given to a letterer, and all those uh, things were done incrementally. That way you could produce the book faster because if it took you a month to draw a book, you could offload the rest of the tasks to somebody else to make the books come out every month. So when I these days when I draw, I tend to draw on the Cintiq, draw digitally, because it's so much easier to resize things. I can create perspective grids so the lines all go to the right place, uh, things like that. But if I know that there's going to be a secondary market for my art, so My Little Pony, I can sell the original artwork that I do for covers for that. I don't have as much call to sell like love and capes or warning label or anything like that. Or if I'm working for a 
you know, a magazine illustration job or some sort of corporate job where the original artwork's not going to have any resale value. There, I will just totally ink it digitally and it only exists as pixels and, and data. But if I know that it has to, and if I know there's an advantage to having the original art, what I will do is I will convert it to a light blue. Um, I have a action that does that. Um, back in the days that they had a shoot, artwork to get it converted so they could put it in magazines um light blue didn't show up so if you drew in light blue you didn't have to erase your pencils you could use it for guidelines you could use it for notes that you had to leave the the production guy that's kind of held true so i could actually print in any color that isn't visually going to be picked up by my by my scanner or something i could drop off drop out quickly but it's just as easy to keep with the light blue it's kind of the I think it's tradition as much as anything else, and I think it kind of looks cool. So then I'll print stuff out in the light blue, and then I will ink it by hand so I have original artwork, and then I will scan it in so that uh, I can go ahead and color it from there. All right. So, but you don't always do that. Sometimes you, um, sometimes you start digital for the whole process, right? Yeah. It, most of my stuff these days is digital to start with. Um, if I'm at a convention doing sketches, those those completely t happen in real space. They don't, um, you know, I'm not using the computer there and I don't want to get to the point where I have to have the computer to make art. I want, I want to keep all those skills together, but on the other hand, it's just really convenient to use some of the, the systems in the program to get something done. It reminds me, you know, like I like to do woodworking and the really good woodworkers can do amazing work with a power saw and they can also do amazing work with a hand plane. And, and I, I think people who try to pick one medium over the other are disabling themselves because right now in 2018, they have both power saws and hand planes. And just like you have both digital and analog tools to create. Oh yeah. I don't, um, there are a lot of people, artists tend to be, um, iconoclasts and, and completely, enamored of their process. So when computers were coming up, there were a lot of people who said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use a computer. I'm like, but why are you making it harder to do work? Like if it's going to take some of the workload off, ostensibly they're all tools. So it's, it's the person using it. It's not the tool that, that makes the difference, but if it makes it faster, that's great. But I still, I never want to not be able to ink with a brush. Uh, and one, I just enjoy it, but two, it's such a classic process. And then also if you learn how to do things the old way, you know, what steps the computer is skipping when you do it the new way. And I think it gives you a much more informed opinion of what you're putting together. When computer lettering started, you could tell which people knew how to letter and which people knew how to type because there was there was just a different in, difference in placement. There was a different in choices of where things went and how you design things or the computer made it possible to make really good looking crap because once you took paste up out of the mix, you know, if you didn't have to cut anything, if you didn't have to wax it and put it down, once that was taken away, it was a lot easier to create a thing. So everything was lined up and it looked neat and clean, but it didn't necessarily look good. So I, I think learning, you know, it's, it's like kids in math class. Cause I'm old enough to say it. I, you know, you should have to learn how to do stuff by hand and then use the calculator because you should know what the calculator is doing for you. Do you see that in your industry a lot? I mean, are there people who are coming up who aren't learning these basic skills? 
there are people who are becoming more and more reliant upon the computer. Um, Google SketchUp. There are a lot of artists who use that because instead of necessarily trying to find a reference photo of a jet in exactly the position you want, you can find a a 3D model of it and move it around to the position you want. But that's taking away the ability or it's it's not forcing you to learn the skill of being able to rotate it in your head and figure out how to build it. So I think some of that's happening. I don't know how much of it is. There's also um, there's a trend with a lot of comics where I think they're becoming way too photorealistic, way too referenced. And this has always been a problem for artists who... Uh, there's some artists who needed to take photos of everything. Now, it, when I was in art school, we were told to keep a morgue of photos as reference that you could use because, you know, someone had asked you to draw a horse. So you need pictures of horses or, you know, keep a bunch of he's writing superhero books because otherwise this is going to sound weird. You keep references of weapons because people are always shooting at superheroes and you want to make sure the guns look like real guns. And now, you know, I can go on Google Images and find the reference on most of what I need to draw anything that has freed things up. But it also... Because you have such absolute access to photos, it can become a crutch where you feel like you can't draw things without the photos. And I think Google SketchUp sometimes gets in the same way where, where people are building models more than they're drawing. Um, so, yeah, I like, keeping, I like keeping those skills around, too. Yeah, just even even my own, like, artist tinkerings on the iPad, because I only do it on the iPad. Um, if I like some of these apps like procreate you can import an image and make it semi-transparent and then you in, in essence start tracing it's it's so easy to make a good image i have a a great picture i've made of some of the disney characters and the pixar characters that started out with tracing and then uh, but but really the next step for me was to stop doing that you know and just start start looking at the toy on the desk and trying to draw it without relying on the trace yeah, and you want to figure out what you're adding to it. I mean, tracing is pretty basic, and there are lots of reasons to do it. Um, like, sometimes I will do it with a pose that I'm having trouble with, or especially I'll take a photo of my hand because there's some particular um, some particular position I want it in, and I just can't rotate it in my head right. But after you trace it to get the basic structure, you still need to do things to make it a drawing rather than you know just a copy of an image. All right, so so what do you do that in? Yeah, I, I, we know the hardware now. You've got the Cintiq and the Mac, um, but what is the software you're using to create that stuff? So I use, uh, like I said, the old Manga Studio Clip Studio Paint. Uh, that's kind of the drawing program these days. It was imported from Japan, if I remember right. It is crazy powerful and super cheap. Um, I'm Every day I'm shocked at some of the stuff that it can do. Um, that is my, that's my go-to drawing program. I do everything in that and then I will export it into Photoshop, um, where I can color it in Photoshop, uh, Clip Studio Paint will export a Photoshop file. So I can just take it to Photoshop and color it. Um, I'll take those pages and drop them into Illustrator and that's where I'll letter it. Uh, and then I can take it in InDesign when I have to put the book together to give it to a printer. If that's for my self-published stuff, that's if I'm going all that way. If I'm doing a cover for a book, if I'm doing a script for a book, I don't have to, I don't have to do every step. I just have to know how they need to receive the files. But you can, and we're going to get through some of those steps later. Um, how can you do the coloring in Photoshop instead of uh, clip studio paint? 
Um, it's the same thing we were saying about uh, time and speed. I've figured out how to make Photoshop do the things that I want it to. And I haven't seen that Clip Studio Paint. Uh, I haven't been convinced that learning that process would be faster than doing Photoshop. And Photoshop is the Swiss army knife of image manipulation. So there's so much stuff I know I can do in there that I... I have to be convinced that Manga Studio can do so much of the stuff that Photoshop does that I wouldn't need to export it in Photoshop anyway. And if at some point I have to take it to Photoshop, I might as well do that earlier. And it's interesting because like, I know how no matter what business you're in or what, what you're using technology for, not only does the other tool have to match the tools, like not only does it have to match Photoshop's abilities it really has to greatly exceed them for you to justify going through the learning curve to given up a known set of skills to pick something else up right yeah it's got to do something better than than the other one could to to uh justify switching it's there's that saying i've heard when it comes to getting jobs in comics that you don't have to draw as well as the guys who are getting hired you have to draw better because we've already got the guys who are drawing like the guys who we're currently hiring so if you want us to pick you you have to bring something entirely new to the table ouch that's hard well and and this may be a, a, a silly question but especially when you're when you're drawing on you know for an established chain I mean, is it I forgive me, but don't most novices who are are used to reading this is what I'm I'm used to this particular brand looking like. Um, Do you do you really want when you're when you're drawing a comic book for a particular series or for a particular story to look all of that that different than the one that came before that may have been done by somebody else? I mean, is there. Is there a, a set standard in the industry that you're when you're drawing for a series that you're you're looking to mimic or a certain style guide or for lack of a better word that you're following? No, style guide is exactly the right word. Um, it depends on the property. So superhero comics and most um, most creator owned books have a lot more flexibility with how people approach characters. So there, if you found six artists drawing Superman, they all draw him a little bit differently. There's, there are the things that are consistent, and you can tell that it's Superman from artist to artist, but they still look different from person to person. Whereas if you're working on something like My Little Pony, there, there you're hewing much closer to the official style. There are still places for personal expression, and with all the artists on the My Little Pony books, I can look and tell you who drew what, and most people can. Um, some of it's in terms of layout, some of it's in terms of complexity or um, how they handle different aspects of that particular universe. So Hasbro has been fantastic when we've worked with them to making sure that it's not just something that looks like screenshots from the TV show, but there's some some aspect of personal expression to it without being too far off model. Uh, there are other licensees or licensors that don't want that level of expression. So it's a lot in my experience, and I haven't had too much experience with it. It's a lot harder for Disney to do something interesting, uh, not interesting to do something more self-expressive for Disney. Like I know that, there's a DuckTales cartoon that's currently on that has um, David Tennant as the voice of Scrooge McDuck. And those characters are designed slightly differently than the classic Disney look. And I know that that was a battle to make that happen. 
Um, so even that amount of variation, you have to fight for a little more with some people than you do with other people. And can I just say David Tennant as Scrooge McDuck is brilliant casting. It's fantastic. <laughs> I haven't seen enough of it, but I love that cartoon so much. I saw him at Disneyland like one day a couple of years ago, and the next day they announced that he had taken that gig. So he had been making some kind of deal, and they sent him to Disneyland. But the uh, like you saw him at Disneyland, just walking around having a good time, or yeah, exactly. And and I it took air. I'm usually when I'm around celebrities, I try not to be that guy. But you know, I'm a Doctor Who fan. It was really hard for me not to walk up to him and show him that I had a plastic sonic screwdriver in my backpack. <laughs> <laughs> I got to I got to take a VIP tour at Disney years and years ago and the guide who was bringing us around the previous day had taken David Tennant and his family around. Yeah, it must have been the same Maybe time. Maybe we were there the next day, yeah. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> How long does it take to do the coloring? Cuz I know I isn't the the I mean the the most um the, the most detailed work is the original pencil drawing or the or, original drawing, correct? It, yeah, it depends on what colorist you have and what effects you're going for. So my stuff looks pretty cartoony, so I can get away with much flatter colors or flat colors with a cut color shadow rather than like intricately airbrushed and multiple light sources. So for me, I can draw, I usually can draw a page in a day top to bottom. So drawing, inking, lettering, coloring, if I, if I know what I'm doing. Um, but it all depends on the complexity of the, of what's being done. There are colorists who draw, who color like two or three pages a day because that's all they do. And what they're doing is far more involved than what I do. So even like on the warning label comic that I did, that was actually done in a limited color set. It was all designed to be colors of a warning label. So it was red, yellow, and essentially a dark brown. And I mixed all those colors together to create the palette for the for the series. So there's no blue or green in it. But when you do that, it also takes out certain questions of, you know, when I had the character's hair color, that was the hair color. I didn't, you know, I just had a palette in Photoshop that said Danielle's hair and press that. And then that's, that was what the color was. I didn't, I wasn't changing it per scene or like if it was nighttime, it's still red as the same color where there are other, there are other artists who, because of what they're working on and because of, of that particular level of complexity that the blue and Superman's uniform might be different in a nighttime scene because light is going to interact differently with it. Uh, that's not what I'm doing, but the people who do that are just amazing. So when, once you finish in Photoshop, you've done the initial coloring, uh, then what next do you do with the, the page? Uh, then I take it into Illustrator so I can letter it. Uh, so that's doing uh, word balloons, essentially body copy, uh, sound effects, um, some title work. What's body? What's body copy? I don't know what that is. I've read comic books. Yeah, um, that's just... Uh, body copy probably comes from my graphic design background more than comics, but that's just the the general speaking balloons. So it's it's the thing that appears in balloons when regular when regular people are speaking, as opposed to the sound effects that appear when someone gets hit or you know when they're uh, animal sounds, depending on how you do it, or any sort of titles or logos. So if they're going into a coffee shop and the coffee shop has a logo, you need to be able to put that in there too. The the lettering was traditionally done by hand, correct? Mm -hmm. For the bubbles. Now, is that still the case? 
in very rare cases, uh, there are a couple people who are so well respected um, that still do it by hand. And there there are a whole subset of us that still can letter by hand, but we choose not to. Um, some of that is is speed and efficiency. Some of it is the way comics are made, where now that people are working in fonts more than hand lettering, it becomes much easier to rewrite something because you're not asking someone to pull up when the, when the lettering was on the board, if you made a correction, it was a big deal where now it's a computer file and it's not actually touching the original art. I I just can't imagine how long that would take by hand. I mean, I could letter, I could letter 10 pages a day back when I was doing it. And I think I lettered 40 is my record, but that was not good. Um, I, it took me a little while to recover from that. I was just behind on some deadlines. When you really get into it, it's kind of zen. I mean, it's a lot like calligraphy. There's there's a little more drawing, a little more cartooniness to it. But um, yeah, once you get into it, it's it's pretty. There there was a whole relaxing aspect to it, and it was it was the thing I was best at when I was at art school. So one, because not every assignment was a lettering assignment the teachers wouldn't care if you had somebody else letter your assignment for you. So I got a lot of free pizza lettering for my friends. Uh, but also it became the thing where that got me noticed by comic book editors because that was the thing that I was better at than anyone else out of art school. And then I could form the relationships with the editors to try to get into inking or coloring or, you know, wherever I wanted to go from there. Is that done with a brush or a pen? Uh, that's done with a pen. Um, the way we used to do it was we had a, there's a pen called a hawk quill. It's kind of like a crow quill. Um, it was a hunt flexible tip pen. And then you would sand it down with a, with a piece of sandpaper so that when you held it at your normal drawing angle, uh, the thickest part of the, uh, you, like you've seen calligraphy pens, right? Which are kind of wedge shaped. Yeah. Essentially you're making that wedge the same angle as you write with so that all your horizontal lines are very thick and your vertical lines are thin. And that puts like an interestingness and a pop to the lettering rather than have it just be all lines that don't vary at all. But now, but now a lot of this is done with the fonts, right? I mean, like I write every year at Max Sparky on January 1st. I remind everybody that's the day to go to comicbookfonts.com and buy a font because they have this amazing sale every year which you can get any font for the one penny per year. So 2019, it'll be $20.19 a font. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I buy a ton then. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and that's done in Illustrator. So you, I guess you lay out the, the speech bubble, you type in the lettering using a font, and, uh, and then you're good to go. Yeah, I'll, I'll import the font from a script. Uh, either my script or whatever script I'm working on, and you change the you change the lettering so that uh, you, know, you use the the find font command so that your your base lettering is all the Roman font, and then your bolds are you know switch them to bold, and your italics are in italics, and they're they're weird like cartooning traditions that I don't know if it. I don't know how many people pay attention to it the way that I do, but um, like anything in a caption box, you know, the ones that would say suddenly, uh, usually those are italicized. So I'll go to the trouble of making sure that those are italic and bold and not upper or Roman and bold. Um, Yeah. And I just do everything on layers. So I've got the balloons on one layer, 
I've got the lettering on another layer. Sometimes all the sound effects on a third layer. The art's on a lockdown on a layer and grayed out a bit. So you put it at like 30% so that you're not fighting the artwork when you're trying to letter it. it you know, because otherwise it's too bright. It's got to be a lot easier than a traditional way of making comics, though, right? I mean, yeah, you can it's, do that. It's, it's certainly faster. Um, again, it's a thing where you can tell the people who know what they're doing. And it's things like sound effects where where there's that aspect of more creativity that you that's where the a lot of times the letterer really knows you can tell what level of craft they're bringing to it but just for doing like basic lettering it's it's a lot faster and a lot easier and i don't sometimes i miss the uh the act of lettering but i don't i don't miss lettering by hand all that much this episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Pixelmator. You can learn more and try Pixelmator Pro free for 30 days by heading over to pixelmator.com. So when I was coming up in high school and college, I thought I was going to be a professional graphic designer, and I used a certain unnamed uh, editing program that cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars and thought that that was the only way to go. Well, I can tell you for years now, Pixelmator has been my exclusive go-to app for editing photos, both on my Mac and on iOS. And now they've done one even better. There is the all-new Pixelmator Pro. Pixelmator Pro is a brand new Mac app that redefines image editing on the Mac, providing professional-grade editing tools and an incredibly intuitive and accessible design. Pixelmator Pro offers you completely non-destructive color adjustments, effect, styles, and layouting tools, and it gives you the flexibility to go back and modify or delete individual changes at any point in your editing workflow. Pixelmator Pro pushes the boundaries of image editing using breakthrough machine learning to develop more intelligent editing tools and features. The Pixelmator team has packed a wide range of features into the brand new Pixelmator Pro, including things like raw support, support for multiple raw images, HEIF file format compatibility, superior support for Adobe Photoshop images, complete macOS integration with full support for iCloud version, tabs, full screen, split view, and a whole lot more. And they recently released version 1.1, codenamed Monsoon, which is a massive update already to the most innovative imaging app already on the Mac. It adds a modern way to easily prepare your images for the web, brings machine learning powered auto color adjustments, and brings support for the MacBook Pro with touch bar, and a new tutorials page to help you learn how to use Pixelmator Pro and a whole lot more. You can find out more by heading over to pixelmator.com. You can pick it up over in the Mac App Store, and you can download a fully functional 30-day free trial. So learn more with pixelmator.com, and thanks to Pixelmator for their continued support of Mac Power users. So, Tom, once you've got the, the pages created, for a lot of the stuff you, you do, like Kickstarters and you sell books that you make yourself, you end up getting to the production step of this as well, correct? Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Oh, um, well, I worked as a graphic designer for about 10 years when I was starting uh, doing comic book work. So I came from that world anyway. So I just, it, what I do is I make everything into PDFs and then I import them into InDesign. And then sometimes there will be like special pages. Like I just put together the warning label trade. So it's 208 pages of the comic. And then there's another 25 pages at the back that go chapter by chapter and say, this is what I was thinking. And here's this in joke. And here's that in joke. And, uh, you know, I had problems with this and the fans reacted to this 
this strip this way uh where those are laid out just pretty much straight in indesign um so you bring in the art pages as art and then you're still designing um content pages as if they're any other graphic design job that's a you know it's it's pretty impressive so you you go from idea to production just using largely the adobe suite and some other software in your mac yep pretty much and then how are these actually published when you decide that it's it's time to move on to the next step obviously for the work that you're doing for for other people then you just send it off to them and and they take care of this but some of these you're doing yourself aren't you yeah, I've done a couple through Kickstarter, um, and then I used to I self-published individual copies of Love and Capes, where those were a standard like twenty-four page comic book, and then eventually I got picked up by IDW, which is a comics publisher, and they started doing the collections. So every six issues to be collected in a trade, and those are a lot more sturdy, and those are more of what you see in bookstores. Um, so I was using local printers. There are a couple specific comic book printers that I would I would use from time to time, but I had built enough relationships with printers here in Ohio that I knew where to go to get a good deal, and I wasn't selling so many books that getting them to the distribution points was that much of a hardship for me because one of the advantages of going with a major comic book printers is that they also are sending trucks to the major comic book distribution points because that's where everybody's getting their books printed. Um, but it also means that they're not necessarily as responsive to someone smaller because you're not in any way the biggest person on their job where someone local might be able to give you a little more um, a little more personal touch or let you see it uh, come off uh, come off the press and do a press check. Uh, I've, I've put together, there's a big yearbook in Baltimore uh, at the Baltimore Comic-Con, a hardcover book collecting a bunch of artists' work every year. I put that together. So I have to do the InDesign files for that. And then I send them to a printer um, up in Canada, usually. Not necessarily, but they were the ones who had the best prices and the best service. And I tell them what I want. And then they tell me how much it's going to be. And I send them a lot of money. And then I get a... I get proofs, I check those over, and then I get books. So uh, I'm doing San Diego Comic-Con pretty soon. When I come home, the warning label trades that I had ordered will be here after I get back. So I'll be getting like 1,500 copies, 1,500 copies of the book will be arriving at my house to be stored in my garage until I distribute them. As this show goes live tom will be in his what third or fourth day of the san diego comic-con convention we're recording this right before he flies out to san diego so if you like tom you should tweet him a word of encouragement because he will have been under siege for four days by then <laughs> yes i'll be surviving mostly on coffee and very little sleep <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that from a um for, oh, i guess you'd be an exhibitor standpoint i mean you're not are you going to you're not going just to hang out and and see i mean i'm sure you will see all the things that there are to see but i i actually will not see all the things there are to see uh this this is one of the things that i'm i'm occasionally sad about uh because i have to be at my booth for the entire run of the show and it's that's because i'm my own boss and i'm i'm mean to myself I don't have anyone else to I split the booth with a friend of mine, but for the most part, I don't have anyone else to cover and nobody is as interested in selling my books as me and nobody else can take the drawing jobs that, you know, if someone comes up and said, I, oh, I want a commission of Crusader from Love and Capes, nobody else can really do that. So it's better for me 
financially and professionally to stay at the booth. But it means that when they have things like the good place experience that's running outside, it's only running during the hours of Comic-Con. So I won't get a chance to see it, especially with as long as the lines are. I So there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the city that I don't get to see anymore that I used to when I wasn't tied to a table. The the San Diego Comic-Con is like about an hour from my house. So I've gone in the past just to kind of explore. And every time there's this section, it kind of reminds me of the old days at Macworld. They had an area called Tiny Town, which was these little booths with independent software developers that were just getting started and sharing what they had. In fact, that's where I met the gang from 1Password when they had first started their app. And the, um, and that's what it's like for these artists. Like Tom, you've got, you've got this section where all these people come to see you and they, they love your books and they want to meet you. So you really can't, and you're the only guy that writes it. So you can't leave. You're stuck. Yeah. I, I say it's kind of like world war one. Like I dig the trenches and I wait for the, the tanks to pass over. Um, <laughs> some of it is me just being a little jaded. It's, if the worst part of my career is when I have to go out to San Diego for a week and talk about the thing I love doing more than anything else in the world, it's not that bad a life. But when you're in the middle of it and hauling a couple hundred pounds of bags and books up to your table and trying to deal with whatever new thing San Diego has decided to put in your way that, oh, now you have to go through the D entrance, not the C entrance. And well, it's like this way for five years. The the thing that uh, actually drives me nuts is that um, I'm six foot four. So I'm a person of height and they now do the RFID badges. Most places that do RFID badges do them as wristbands, but Comic-Con is still doing badges that sit around your neck. So I basically have to genuflect to get into the convention because (laughs) my badge is so much higher than the reader is. And if you're carrying a box of books, that is not insignificant. That's not a problem for me. I'm short. (laughs) (laughs) So what about when you go to the convention? I mean, what kind of tech do you bring with you to survive that? Uh, I've always got my iPad with me. I've always got my iPhone. I've got my square reader. Um, My iPhone is on one carrier and my iPad is on another because sometimes you'll hit that convention that, oh, we don't get good AT&T service and I want to be able to take credit cards. If you have money, I want to be able to figure out a way to get it. So it gives me like a redundancy to to make sure that I can take whatever orders I need. I've always felt that is like a really smart play. Like if you are on the road a lot and you need the Internet at all times. Having an iPad and an iPhone on two different networks, the two major networks of whatever country you're in, really opens up the possibilities. I did that for a long time, but then it just got, I didn't want to spend the money. I got, Once I had tethering and everything was free within my plan, I just kind of eventually took it all into one network. But I still miss that sometimes when I get a place that doesn't cut, you know, that doesn't have AT&T, then I'm kind of out, out of luck. Yeah, and it's, it's certainly gotten a lot more ubiquitous. There aren't, uh, there aren't conventions that, don't get uh, that don't get good signal on one network like there used to be ones that you knew oh your verizon won't work in this place but now they all seem to work okay and it's just how many people are hitting the network at any one time that that becomes the problem i'm surprised any network works at comic-con there's so many people there i think they bring extra um cell uh, they're like portable cell towers because they used them for South South by Southwest. So I think that I think they've started to do that. And that it makes a world of difference because the, the first year of the iPhone, it was like molasses. Any, anytime anyone was using it in the convention center. 
And then you you said you use the Square system to to collect payment if somebody wants to buy something. Yeah, I've got the the wireless one so that I can take Apple Pay or um, chip cards, and then I've got the the one that attaches directly into the headphone jack, which is why one of the many reasons I miss the headphone jack on my iPhone because I have to have the adapter to hook the square reader into it. If that is the way that I am taking a credit card. Um, fortunately not a problem on the iPad, which is why I try to take all my orders on that. But yeah, I'm, I still don't know why they did that. It gets in my way. Um, isn't there, isn't there now a a square reader that's like, um, RFID or or, uh, Apple pay? I, I don't know. I think they have a newer one now, but yeah. Yep. I use that one, but if you get somebody who doesn't have a chip card, you have to go back to the old reader. Mm, Okay. And, and that happens a greater than zero number of times where I can't just convert from one to the other. Plus the, the ones that fit in the headphone jack, they barring any like actual physical problems with them, they always work like the RFID ones have to be charged. So it might, you know, you might've forgotten to charge it that week and you know, you're losing power in it, but the, the one you plug into the headphone jack doesn't need power. It will always work as long as your phone works. So you've got your, your iOS devices, you're ready to collect payment. You've got comic books to sell and probably artwork to sell. Mm-hmm. What else do you need to survive in the, in the trench? Uh, <laughs> I, it's Comic-Con. I usually have a couple boxes of cinnamon frosted pop tarts under my table. Um, those are, <laughs> those are pretty important. Um, I have, uh, I've got the Apple, um, battery case on my iPhone. Um, because at that it will not survive and usually, uh, another charger. If I can, I will bring my laptop if I think it's going to be a slower show or if I have something huge that needs to be done, because especially when you're a one man shop, sometimes people need work done at inconvenient times and I can't do everything on the iPad. So, you know, like script editing or animation or something like that, I actually do need the the laptop, but, I won't bring the laptop with me over to San Diego. It'll be in the hotel room just in case, but I won't bring it over to the show because the chances of me having enough time to type are incredibly low. And I don't want to have my head. There are a lot of artists who do this anyway, but I don't want to have my head down and not looking at who's coming up to the table because you don't know who's coming up to the table and you want them all to have a good experience and not just be so wrapped up in your world that you're not paying attention to the reason that you're actually there. Yeah, I would imagine that's a great place to get feedback from your customers, you know, to find out what they like and don't like. So you do have to be engaged. Yeah. And it's where you find like new customers and, you know, you have to know how to do your, you know, the elevator pitch of what your book's about and try to get people interested. And, you know, um, it's kind of like dating. You know, you want to make eye contact and smile, but not be scary. Um, just, just enough to get, just enough to get people to come over because there's so many, uh, along with people who don't look at anyone, there's also that subset of people who are trying so hard to sell that it's like walking down the midway to amusement park and that hard sell doesn't always work. And I, I don't want to be that guy either. And then I imagine back at the room, you've got a whole bunch of technology to keep everything charged every night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got, um, I have the plug bug. I, I don't know if they still make it. Yeah, that's the that's the twelfth South. I don't know that they still make it either, but I had one for the longest time. I don't know are can you even use it now with the new power adapters? Uh I don't know because I'm still on the old power adapter. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me. I, I guess we should tell people what it is. The the plug bug um was a replacement um piece. The the MacBook 
the original, the, the 2010 and before MacBook uh, Pro power adapters that worked with the MagSafe adapters, you could you could take a little piece off and replace it with the plug bug that would give you a charger for your MacBook Pro, but then also give you a USB charger. So you could both charge your MacBook um, and your iPhone at the same time. Yeah, it, it took advantage of the um, the blade plug, you know, the blade that you plug into the wall because Apple makes different configurations of that depending on what country you live in. So the plug bug would connect, you, you take that blade off and it had a new blade, but it also had a charger built into it for your iOS stuff. It was, it was a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that thing. Well, be careful about replacing your laptop. You may lose your plug bug. <laughs> yeah, that's something I, I can't get into. I haven't been convinced about the, the USB-C ports yet, just because there's so many times that I need to. And I could be wrong because my what I demand of my laptop is far less than what I demand of my desktop. But you know, I just need to be able to throw in a flash drive from time to time and you know, classic USB works really well for that. That's okay. As pioneers are taking plenty of errors <laughs> on that one right now, too. I appreciate that. You can solve that problem for me, too. <laughs> that goes back to your original response regarding why you bought an iPhone 8. I get it. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Head over to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps to get 20% off your 1Password subscription. Personally, I've been using 1Password for years now. It's a great application to create and manage safe and sane passwords for all of your logins. It's also a great place to store secure information because it erects a separate vault between your data and other people, whether you're storing the data on your Mac, your iPad, or your iPhone. Something I've been doing with 1Password lately that I hadn't really explored fully in the past is 1Password vaults. Once you subscribe to 1Password, you've got the ability to set up vaults for your data. Traditionally, I had one vault for stuff I wanted to share with my family and the other one for stuff I wanted to keep for myself, but I've gone much beyond that in the last few months. Now I've got vaults set up for the Max Sparky business, for the law practice business, and other elements of my life, and I've really found it makes using 1Password easier. I say this because with separate vaults, it's easy to keep your data integrated in a way that makes more sense. So if I want to work on the Max Sparky stuff, I can just see all of the websites and passwords that relate to that. It's also going to make it easier for me to share this stuff as I use some of the 1Password sharing features with some of the people helping me out. So when a password changes, I can easily get the new password to the trusted person helping me out. Another reason why I like these vaults is because I have a lot of passwords. I've got over a thousand entries in one password and splitting them up into vaults makes it much more manageable for me to kind of take them on and audit them and make sure I have what I need. Going through that process, I was able to find a lot of passwords that I don't need anymore. And now that I've got these vaults set up, I think it's going to be a lot less likely for me to have password bloat like I had in the past. This is just one of the many features you get when you sign up for 1Password. It's a great application and service and really essential in these days where there's so many people trying to break into your internet accounts. If you're not using 1Password, you should. And if you are using it, you should turn on your family and friends to 1Password because I think there's nothing more important than to help people be more secure on the internet. To get a discount, head over to onepasswordcom MPU with MPU in all caps, and you get 20% off your subscription. Both Katie and I are longtime users of, and we love 1Password. You should too. 
Tom, you know, we, we talked through the process of creating these books, but we didn't really talk about the fact that you're a writer as well. And I'm, I'm really impressed by that because, you know, these are stories and they have arcs and they, you know, it's, there's a lot to uh, writing a, a comic book. And I, you know, for people that are listening, if you haven't read a comic book lately, they're really good lately. And, and I know that must be a, a whole different set of brain cells you're powering to make that happen. Uh, so how do you get these things written? Oh, uh, th- there's, there's a little bit of crossover because I think visually a lot. But even still, it's it's figuring out where you want the story to start, uh, the things that you like for me, I try to figure out what thing I want to say, not necessarily like in a giant preachy way. But um, like when I wrote Love and Capes, the the genesis of the idea was in the Superman comics, Superman had gotten engaged to Lois Lane and then he waited six months to tell her he was Superman. And I think there were there were after like production reasons why this had to happen. Like it would have been easier to undo the engagement without revealing the identity if there was huge fan backlash or something like that. But it bothered me because I figured if you get engaged, you got to lead with that. Like, hey, guess you need to know this thing about me if you're going to get married. And I thought it would be really interesting to explore a relationship between a superhero and in this case, his girlfriend where she's dealing with the fact that, you know, he's essentially this rock star that she didn't know about. And that was the story I wanted to tell. And I, w- I wanted to write the comic book about people in a healthy relationship and that wasn't being done a lot. So that was interesting to me. Um, even, you know, even with my little pony there, sometimes the genesis of the idea is something particularly crazy. Like recently I wrote an issue that is essentially to my mind, apocalypse now, Um, (laughs) where one of the characters goes into a magical dimension and, uh, accidentally takes it over. So she goes native and the other ponies have to go upriver to get her. Um, I read that you sent it to me. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. So yeah, it it just, uh, you know, whatever, whatever place you start and then figuring out how to get there. And then in comics, um, and kind of the same way with animation writing or script writing, you can play around with how time works on the page, but you have a finite number of pages. So like a My Little Pony story these days is 20 pages. So once I pitch the story, I have to figure out how to tell it in exactly 20 pages. I, I can't move it around. Um, when I did warning label for Webtoons, that I had flexibility. I could add more panels. I could add more chapters. It was digital. So you had that sort of flexibility. But when you're working on a print book, you have to you have to hit the page count that's there. So when you do get down to the hard work of moving the cursor, where are you doing that? Pitches, I tend to be able to... Pitches, I write half here, half at um, Panera or Starbucks. For me, there's something about going off-site. Um, even though the computer can be just as distracting, um, it's easier for me to ignore Twitter or email or whatever. I think there's something about taking the ride up there that forces me to commit to it. So, like, if if I've decided that I'm going to go up to Panera and I'm going to get lunch up there, you also have to write. That's part of the deal. You can't just come up here and have lunch. You you have to stay around here for a while. And it's amazing how much of writing is just actually sitting in the chair and forcing yourself to do it. And it's interesting to me. So, I, I don't know if I talked about this before. This could be like the, whoa, that happens. Um, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire years and years ago. <laughs> I didn't know and that. Hang yeah. on. Uh, Can, all right. <laughs> oh, so I want to ask a question, but it's rude. 
So bring it on. All right. How far did you get? Uh, $32,000. I, I made it to question, uh, I made it to question 11, got that wrong and dropped down to 10. Uh, it was in the first year in Meredith Vieira. So, uh, yeah, I essentially have a free guess at 64. Um, my lifeline wasn't on the internet like I had hoped. Um, he actually had the answer right. Uh, it was Charles Gorin quit his law practice in the 30s to become an expert in this poker, bridge, billiards, or golf. And I thought it was poker, and my lifeline wasn't really confident about it being bridge. And I said, well, if I'm going to go out on a guess, I'm going to go out on mine and not somebody else's. It's very considerate of you, but but your lifeline was right and you weren't. Yes. And on top of that, I had people who said, you know, like, what was it like to lose $32,000? I'm like, what are you talking about? I won $32,000 sitting in a chair talking to Meredith Vieira for 10. Yeah. It it uh, it was the down payment on my house. So I am currently in the house that Meredith bought. Um, but one of the things they told us when we were on the show, and you see them do this when you watch the show, is they said that thinking is analog and speaking is digital. So the reason you try to talk things out is because you have to commit to one thing or another. And it forces it makes you think through things in a way that when you're holding two ideas in your head at the same time, you're you're not committing to so the same way when you write when you actually start typing you realize you have to make decisions and it's not that you can't go back and change them but you you start seeing how many choices you have to make and that starts influencing the story and it's remarkably how remarkable to me how many times that i'm typing something and something i didn't know that i had apparently already thought through happens as i'm typing like, oh, that's a really good idea that ties in with this other thing. And if you had asked me to, um, it wasn't in my head, but the act of having to make those choices forces you to come up with those connections as well. All right. I'm sorry. We've we've got off on a complete tangent now. How, how do you get to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> Katie's not so over they, it yet. I'm sorry. I'm not no, over no, no, it yet. It's fine. <laughs> uh, they, they had a... So... Um, if I haven't told this, I'd love this story. This is this is going to like free agent stuff. No, he didn't tell the story on free agents. I would have remembered. I, I listened to it. Okay, I, because I think this is important for freelance. My aunt, uh, my late aunt, uh, would always clip stuff out of the newspaper and saw that there was a bus tour coming through town. And I had been freelance for about six months. And I remember thinking, I don't want to drive downtown. Parking is a pain, and it's going to rain. And oh, I don't know if I want to do it. But I did it. And I went down and there's a 30 question test. You couldn't have your phone out, which I said, what if you want to call a friend? Um, you couldn't have your phone out. Uh, and then they didn't say what a passing score was. But after after they graded them, they called the numbers of the people who got the right number of answers. And that was me. And then they take you up for an interview to make sure that you're personable. Um, there were a couple of times where I thought I had messed it up uh, because one of them was what is what's your dream job? And I realized I had it and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm doing it now. It, it, it means a lot to me that I've figured that out. But if I wasn't doing this, I would want to be the guest villain on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And they said, why would you want that? I'm like, well, I want 13 episodes, my own action figure in the cover of Tiger Beat magazine. And they said, <laughs> are they still publishing Tiger Beat? And I'm like, that's not the important part of that. I've, I want 12 year old girls <laughs> to wonder if I like to ride horses. That's what I'm looking for. Um, well, of course they picked you because who doesn't want to talk to the person who writes comic books and wants to be a villain on Buffy? Exactly. Exactly. So they even um, they do a like a contestant questionnaire and I was afraid they could kick me still. So I tried to write the funniest questionnaire they'd ever gotten. And there's all sorts of weird um, like quiz show laws that came out of the out of 
the scandal in the 50s where you can't talk to certain people who are working on the show and you know you have to keep these things separate but i remember filling out that questionnaire and like the second question was marital status and i put tragically single and it just kind of went from there and after i was on the show then my contestant representative could come up and meet me and she said i want you to know you had the funniest questionnaire we've ever received so i nailed that one i stayed on the show um well did you did you end up meeting anybody based on that no just <laughs> no not from that katie i get the impression you've thought a lot about getting yourself on who wants to be a millionaire baby oh, I'm, I'm, let's keep going yeah I, mean, I think i can do it <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of fun it is more fun to have done than to do um i would love to do it again because it's so it's so hard to enjoy the moment when you're in it because you're stressing out so much about it. By the way, David is so mad right now because this is nowhere on the outline. And I just took his <laughs> perfect plan and we just took it completely off the rails. Hey, you're but doing a sparky to me. I feel like it's a reverse but sparky. But that's all right, because everyone who's listening to the show is like, I really want to know about who wants to be a millionaire. Not that everything else hasn't been important, but come on. You say you've been on who wants to be a millionaire. The whole Mac Power user stuff just goes out the window. <laughs> Please tweet at David and let him know that you appreciate this break in content. I, I do have, I'll, I'll give you the link for it. I do have the entire Who Wants to Be a Millionaire story up there. Um, like how I got on the show and what the questions were and what the questions were I got on the show. But like one of them, my $32,000 question, the one that if I got right, I couldn't go below was a comic strip question. And you think, oh, I'm totally going to nail this one. But I saw someone go out on a question because they had stared at it for too long. And it was which of these is not a thing. And he stared at it for so long that he he stopped paying attention to the negative. So, you you know, when you get that comic book question, you're like, I, I can't go out on a comic book question. I will never live that down. Like, it's it's hard to relax in that moment. You, you, you can only lose. There's nothing to gain on a question like that for you. But, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I would I would love to do it again. Well, um, uh, so getting back uh, now, I'm playing the role of Katie Floyd. <laughs> Wait, I, might ha I might have more questions about this. Okay. Well, are you sure I do? Is there anything else you need to cover on this, Katie? Is that your final answer? I mean, is there? Da -da -da -da. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you do start uh, committing the words to uh, your computer, where, what app are you doing it in? Uh, I'm working in pages for the most part. Um, comic books don't have an actual scripting format. It's not like uh, screenplays, um, which I've done. And when I do those, I'm in final draft. But with comics, it it just has to work for you and the artist if you're not the one drawing it or you and the editor if you are or you and the licensor. So like when I do a My Little Pony script, it gets approved by Hasbro before it goes to an artist. So it's got to be enough for people to read, but the actual formatting doesn't quite matter as much. So, yeah, I just I do everything in pages and then save it out as a Microsoft Word document for people who are on PCs. And, you know, it's also really easy to save it as PDFs. And that was interesting to me because pages, you, you really need a traditional word processor because of the layout stuff you're doing. Yeah, I, I set up a format for like page number, panel number, panel description, who's speaking, and then where the dialogue is, it's got to lay visually on the page so that when somebody's reading it, they know what everything is. But it's not as like a, a screenplay format is really regimented. Um, and I know some are some writers who work in uh, Final Draft as a letterer. I haven't liked getting the Final Draft scripts back because there's a lot of formatting stuff that I have to strip out. Um 
so just working in in pages is a lot easier to bring that script into um into illustrator when i'm lettering so tom you you uh, write the books then you draw the books you make them and distribute them you really are a one-man business aren't you uh, apparently very difficult to work with so yeah <laughs> Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about that because you've done some indie stuff that I'm I'm really interested in. Like one of the things you've done is, uh, you know, you've got this growing fan base with the stuff you're creating on your own. You know, let's, let's set aside the Disney and the Hasbro, but just the stuff you're making. Um, in order to get those things published, you're taking advantage of some of the newer, you know, micro funding stuff. Like I know you're you've run a couple things for Kickstarter. So, so explain that process and, and how you tracked it and, and basically how do you keep the lights on, on your business in addition to being a fantastic artist? Oh, uh, you're very kind. Um, it's a couple different ways. One, uh, keeping the lights on is that I don't put all my eggs in anyone else's basket. Um, I try to stay diverse enough so that if, if comic book dries up for a while, I'm still doing illustration or graphic design or enough things to keep multiple plates spinning. And on top of that, like when I do my little pony, I get paid for that up front. When I do um, Love and Capes, that is more of a back end deal. But then I also own that. So eventually, hopefully someone will option it as a movie like it has more of a life to it than what the pony script does. So it's making sure that there are multiple revenue streams so that I'm not, you know, I don't I don't want the industry to be so shaken up at some point that the one thing I'm doing goes away. Like um, that was actually a thing with computer lettering because I came out at the era that you were still hand lettering. And, you know, I saw the writing on the wall literally and decided that I needed to learn how to computer letter. And fortunately I was making enough money as a letterer that I could afford to get the money for my aunt and then buy the computer that taught me how to letter on the computer. So you, I said before, my job's not necessarily drawing. My job's staying employed um, and paying attention to what's going on in the industry or whatever industries I'm working in so that there's kind of constant cash flow. Um, as far as things like Kickstarter, um, I've, I've done two Kickstarters. I've loved them both. Uh, the thing I like about it is when you decide to do a project, a lot of people will tell you that they will support it, but then it's getting them to put their money where their mouth is. That makes it difficult to... Um, fund the thing because it used to happen to me where people would say they want t-shirts then it would make t-shirts and people wouldn't buy enough of them for me to have justified making the shirts so with kickstarter i i could figure out my numbers and say okay this is how much it would cost me to do warning label as a as a collection because it had existed on webtoons and webtoons said i could do a print version so I knew what those numbers were, and then I created re reward levels for it. I tried to keep them manageable. Um, Warning Label did far, far better than I thought it would. And I wasn't – there are a couple things with scale that I wasn't completely prepared for. Um, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. And, like, you learn all the mistakes from your last one, but not necessarily for your next one. So I I had had number rewards um, because I did a – I did the book, and if I hit enough, I did T-shirts, and then I did pins, and then the big reward is that in the in the course of the comic, uh, Danielle, the lead character, pitches a game that's a, a card game based on um, you play a convention and you play against other conventions and try to have the best show. So we hit the reward level where we're going to make the game, uh, which is which is fantastic. But it didn't occur to me that I would have so many more 
backers than I did on the original on the first Kickstarter I did. So the first one I did had about a hundred people. This one I've got about two hundred and sixty people. So it even though I was asking for more money, it didn't occur to me that, oh, you're going to have to mail out two and a half times as many packages as you did the last time. That, you know, there's going to be a week that is going to be me fulfilling Kickstarter stuff. I've I've already decided to loop my godson into it and help have him help me make the packages. I, w- I was talking to a friend in the, remember the Pebble Watch? It was, you know, before the Apple Watch, there was the Pebble Watch. And I was talking to a friend in the industry, you know, up in Silicon Valley, who's involved with a lot of hardware projects. And he said the worst thing that ever happened to those guys was the success they had. A Kickstarter because that it was so much, so many more backers than they ever expected. That it, if you'll recall, it took them like two or three years to ship a product because the, the they had scale added on top of everything else. Yeah, at that point, it becomes um, that becomes your job is just fulfilling that. And there are a lot of things that I think my my ability to budget and having worked in graphic design that I know. Like your shipping cost is pretty fixed. You're not going to get a break on that, but you're going to get a break if you make more books. So you can build that into it. So you're figuring that I want to make a thousand books, but if I get enough people, then I'll make more books and that'll bring the per unit cost down and that'll be kind of a wash. Um, just figuring all that stuff out and then keeping track of um, who's got rewards and who you fulfilled and who needs what. So I, I kind of live in the numbers spreadsheet. Um the number spreadsheet program, I, I'm making it do things that shouldn't ought to be done with the spreadsheet, but it will. So it's designed to generate lists for me. So I know exactly what shirts are committed to people. So I knew what sizes to get. I knew how many I needed to get. Um, so how do you do that? So every reward level, well, it was two things. The first hundred people who backed once we hit got the t-shirt and the pin for free and then after that there was a separate reward level where people needed it so i had a um i have a function that would figure out if you're one of the first 100 backers and then would add shirt size and pin in a different column and then it was like a if then statement where if you weren't in the first hundred, but you were at this backing level, if it matched that, then it would out, it would prompt me to make sure that I found out who the uh, um, what the shirt size was. Um, Kickstarter will generate your backer report as a CSV file, so it's real easy to import. the The only problem I've noticed is with numbers, it brings in the zip code as a as a num- as a number, not as characters. So it, the leading zero in the Eastern seaboard numbers disappears. Oh man. <laughs> so Whoops. like where I went to art school is 07801 and it'll appear as 7801. Um, so you have to have to be careful for that. I wonder if you could fix that also with conditional formatting. Like if there was four digits, you just add a leading zero. I don't know. Yeah. You'd have to convert it to text first, I think, but yeah, it, it becomes weird. Now, if you're listening and this stuff sounds mysterious to you, whether you're using numbers or Excel, it's called conditional formatting and it allows you to put if then statements into a spreadsheet. And like a lot of times people use it, like you'll see a spreadsheet automatically changes the, the color of, of uh, the background of a cell that's a negative number or um, inserts a yes or a no or does things like that automatically based on information in other fields. It's, um, it's not hard. I recommend opening up numbers or, or Excel, whichever one you prefer. And just playing with the conditional formatting rules, because once you internalize that that exists, you will find uses for it. 
Oh yeah, I um I put together a book last year that uh, it was a 200-page story and there were two of them and it was done in like increments of 3 or 4 pages per artist because it was a big jam book. So I had to have a spreadsheet that listed what all the stories were, who the artists were, if the art had come in. Um, but I had it format, you know, if the art had come in, it was green. And if it wasn't, it was red. And it let me look at the spreadsheet just really quickly and get a sense of how many people were in and how many people were out and who I had to track down. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by SaneBox. Head over to SaneBox.com slash MPU to start your free trial today and receive a $20 credit when you sign up. So I must admit, I did not think that I needed a service to help me manage my email. Candidly, I think I'm pretty good at email myself. But I will tell you, once I tried SaneBox, it took me 48 hours to realize just how important this was going to become to my email workflow. I signed up for a two-year membership and I've never looked back. SaneBox will automatically filter the email that's important to you, leaving what's important in your inbox and help filtering what isn't out. The best part about SaneBox is it works with all kinds of email services and programs. You don't have to change your provider. You don't have to change your app. Right off the bat, they give you the Sane Later folder. It helps keep in your inbox only what really matters and gets rid of everything that doesn't. Just today, I saw that I had about 20 emails in my same later folder after I hadn't checked email for a while. I went through in less than 30 seconds and got rid of them all because SaneBox was right. I really didn't need them. One of my favorite features is the ability to snooze email. This is great for deferring email that you want to deal with, but you don't need to deal with right now. Maybe you can deal with it tomorrow when you get back in the office, or maybe it's something that's more appropriate to save for the weekend. You snooze it till later and that email will pop back in your inbox right when you need it. And a newcomer for me is Sane Reminders. I didn't used to use these, but now I can't live without them. Sane Reminders allows you to CC or BCC like, you know, one week at SaneBox.com when you send an email to somebody. And if your receiver doesn't reply, you'll get a reminder in one week reminding you to follow up. But it's infinitely customizable. You can say follow up on August 15th or follow up in two days, whatever you want to do. SaneBox is a whole lot more, and you're just going to have to try your two-week free trial to figure it all out and see how it works best for you. It will do things like move attachments to Dropbox and other cloud services. It will let you work with your administrative assistant if that's something you want to do. The possibilities are endless. So head on over to SaneBox.com MPU. Start your 14-day free trial today, and when you decide to sign up, which you will, uh, make sure you let them know that Mac Power Users sent you to receive a $25 credit on any plan. Thanks to SaneBox for their continued support of the show. One of the things I got from talking to Tom off, offline is he really runs his business on numbers. Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable how well you are or how good you are at running that app. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I uh, I never really bonded with Quicken. And I I have such different revenue sources. So I have a master spreadsheet that allows me to um, keep track of my income and my expenses for being a cartoonist. But the way uh, comic book convention numbers come in are different than the way that just like sending a straight invoice comes in. And it's even set up so that once the spreadsheet knows that I did San Diego Comic-Con, it also, there's a place for me to say how many days I was here so I can get my per diem for that. Uh, you know, how much travel was involved? Like what, what did it take to get to the airport? Or if I drove into the show, how far was that? So I can, you know, do mileage and what I made and what my square fees were and all of that stuff. 
Okay, Tom, I want to switch gears a little bit. One of the things that um, that I know is important to somebody who makes his entire living creating content on his computer is backup. And uh, I know this is a tired topic on the Mac Power Users, but from your perspective, how, how are you backing all this stuff up? I had a huge crash in 2009, and it scarred me for life. <laughs> so so there, there are two people... The- People who have lost data and people who will lose yes. lose data, and uh, sometimes you have to be burned before you learn that lesson. Yeah, and I was fortunate that I didn't lose any client files; those I had actually just backed up to my laptop. But I lost some of my invoicing, and it wasn't it wasn't the end of the world, but it it was not pleasant. And there's a lot of there's a little hole in my world um, from when that happened. So uh, I do I think nightly backups to my Drobo. And my Drobo is pretty tricked out and holds most of what I work on. So everything exists on the iMac and then there's a backup on the Drobo. I back everything up to Backblaze as well. And I back both sets of those up because they're, it's an attached drive. It's not network storage. Um, I've got a couple hard drives that are set up to run a couple um, backups as well. Back when I was super duper paranoid, I would uh, trade one of those drives out with my dad every six months or every month. So that there was something that was completely offsite. Since I switched to Backblaze, I don't I don't feel like I need that quite as much. Uh, I have uh, things that live in the cloud, um, especially in Dropbox. For like a lot of my writing lives there. So that if one because I'm I'm writing on the laptop and then I'm editing it on the desktop or making changes when like just today there was a there's a note on one of the My Little Pony ones that some particular line of dialogue needed to change, and I'll just do that on the on the desktop, but I need that to be accurate amongst everything. Um, the one place that I've found that I still don't know what I want to do with it is legacy stuff. So uh, in my studio, there is a big one of those old Ikea Billy bookcases full of DVDs and CDs of just backups of previous client stuff before I had enough hard drive space to keep it all. And I want, I want that. I want some other kind of backup that I can have just like one more physical piece of offsite storage, you know, even counting for the fact that, you know, I don't know that all those CDs necessarily work anymore. Like they're not, it's not a hundred percent, but I just want that one extra level of protection. Yeah. I think the traditional idea was the three, two, one, you have three copies of it on at least two different media, you know, hard drive plus something else. And then at least one of them is offsite. I I don't know how I feel about two different media anymore. I feel like uh, hard drives are so cheap now. And those CDs and DVDs do go bad after a certain amount of time. And without you really knowing it, uh, kind of in my head, I think you're better off just routinely replacing hard drives and having lots of them than trying to go to the CD and DVD media. But I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of email or tweets telling me that I'm wrong about that. Yeah, and effectively, that's what I've done. But there's still that, you know, there's still that part of me that wants to have one other canonical backup somewhere. You know, I I, I know that the, like all my Love and Capes files have never left my computer, but they're also on the DVDs and that it gives me a sense of security, even if it's wrong that, you know, in 20 years, if we want to do another version of it, hopefully, you know, like I, I, I don't know what the feasibility of carrying, you know, a file that I made in 2005 with me for the rest of my career is. Um, but you know, if they want to do a love and capes reprint, 
I'm going to need those files. So I have to kind of keep them current. You have them on your hard drives too, though, right? Which, which means they're also going to backblaze and all this other stuff. Okay. Yeah. Don't, if, if you're counting on the, um, the CDs and DVDs to be in your canonical versions, I think you may be in for a surprise in 20 years. Oh yeah. It's, it's more that being an artist, the files are huge. So it's that kind of like, I know storage is getting cheaper the more we go. And I've, you know, I, I have like four, four is like eight, 16 terabytes of space on my Drobo or something like that. Um, but you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years and, you know, in another 20 and another 40, like how much information is that? Like, will that be feasible to have on, on one, it's essentially attached to one device. Yeah. My, my goal has always been for backblaze to lose money on all of the Mac power users, listeners, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so just attach it to your machine and just send it up. <laughs> you know, There's plenty of people out there paying the full price for very small storage. Uh, Mac power users, we're go- we're going to make them earn their money. Yeah, they're. I'm a losing proposition for them. <laughs> what What about? Are there any other favorite apps you have that you know just really help you get your work done? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Let's see. Um, I use uh, I use a Rocket Book. Are you guys familiar with that at all? Um, it, it was on Shark Tank. Um, it was in Indiegogo, but it's a reusable notebook. Okay. I didn't realize that was a, a real product. Yeah. Uh, there are ones that you can heat up because you have to use the, the Frixon pens with it. This is the thing that you put in the microwave, right? Yes, but there's a new one, uh, that came out last year and essentially you can use a damp cloth and just erase stuff. Okay. Well, you should back up and tell people what it is. Cause not everybody's seen the Shark Tank demo. Yeah. I, I've never seen this. I have no idea what it is. See, now, you know, the type of TV shows I watch, but I swear I really don't watch all the reality TV. <laughs> so it is a reusable notebook. Um, the, the rocket book, um, I think it's the Everlast is the one I use now. You have to use a particular type of pen, but it's it's called a Frixon pen and they're all over the place and like you can buy them at any store. They're not hard to find at all, but the paper is set up in such a way that while the ink stays on the page, you can wipe it off with a damp cloth and reuse the, uh, reuse the page, but they also all have a QR code on them and you can scan it and upload it to different file systems. So there are a bunch of icons at the bottom and you can, depending on which ones you, you, uh, put a slash on or whatever, you know, I can have it email it as soon as it scans it. I can have it put it in a folder in Dropbox. I could, you know, I think it uses box. I don't know if I could do iCloud at this point, but I, I can do it for a lot of things. So when I'm at a meeting taking notes for a client, uh, about a job, I can also click that and, uh, have a copy on my hard drive of those notes. Um, on top of that, I've gotten kind of into bullet journaling for keeping track of to-do lists and things like that. And there's something about just being able to use the same page and, and wipe it off that has gotten a, it has gotten me over the preciousness of a journal that you're filling up and moving stuff around and eventually going to throw out that's a work product. So it, I don't know, it, it works with my mind a little bit better, but I use that thing all the time. It kind of reminds me of the the live scribe pens. I don't know if those are still a thing and are those still around. Have, do you? I know David is familiar with them because we used to see those those folks over at MacWorld, but I don't know if that's still a thing. Those are the ones that it would it would track your writing. Yeah, it had like a camera in the pen. 
And you would you would write on these notebooks that had these little teeny dots on them. So the the rocket book, you can actually print out your own pages if you want. Which uh, so like the tally sheet that I sometimes use at conventions, I've got set up as a rocket book page so I can just there's just an app for the iPhone and you scan it and it goes goes up to wherever you want it. Um, It keeps you from losing stuff. And I like it a lot. Uh, Let's see. So um, I do that. I use I'm looking for the name of it. Um, I use email archiver pro uh, because I have the same problems with email that everybody does. Um, But I feel like I need to archive those and it will change uh, an email archive into PDFs, which uh, it keeps them searchable, but it lets me get rid of them on, you know, I can delete them from the Apple mail app. And then I know I've got a backup of them somewhere. Uh, I like that one a lot. I use name changer because there's a lot of naming conventions that you have to keep up in comics when you're giving files to someone else that things that make sense to me don't make sense to them. So you want to make sure they all look the same. Um, I use text expander a lot too. Uh, I've got a bunch of different, I've got some scripts for um, when you're working on a comic book, you number every word balloon so that the letterer knows that uh, because where it belongs. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's usually some sort of hard copy that's given to the letterer that, Oh, Balloon three is going to this person. Balloon four is going to this person. Um, So I have a script that puts those numbers in and keeps going up and up and up Um, and then resets. Uh, I've got a couple for posting things online where, you know, you've got a image or one of those um, like a love and capes page and it will once I type in the file name, it'll generate the HTML to post it for me. So I like that a lot too. You know what, Matt? I'm sorry. You know, Tom, you really are a geek, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was programming Apple two. Yeah. I was programming Apple two E's and I still remember basic and I still, I I miss that, that logic part of stuff. So I like, I like being able to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's really impressive the amount of output you make. And now I kind of get a, an understanding of how you do it all. Yeah, I, I try to stay on top of it. I I really like what I do and I keep trying to get more efficient about it. And I just, you know, I'm totally into idea capture and I I, I know I've told this story other places before, but I, I have those um, bath crayons because I keep getting ideas in the shower so I can write those down there too. I just like, I, I want to figure out how to, your brain's not good at remembering stuff. It's good at generating stuff. So I keep trying to figure out how to capture it and make sure that, it's where I need it to be and, you know, get all the boring stuff out so I can make things. Yeah. My wife generally puts up with my madness, but when I put a notepad in the shower was when she really looked at me funny. <laughs> so Tom, where can people find you? Is your stuff on the web or where, where can people go find us, find all things for your stuff? So, uh, I am at Tom Zoller, T H O M Z A H L E R on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Tom Zoller on Facebook. Um, my online stuff is at webtoons, webtoons.com where warning label is where Cupid's arrows will be. And then my main website is Tom Z T H O M Z.com. Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We will have links to many of the things that we talked about in the show notes. And remember, if you want to follow up on this conversation with the other Mac Power users, listeners, uh, you can do that in our MPU discourse forums. You can find those at talk.macpoweruser.com. 
We do want to thank our sponsors for this episode. That is Anchor, Pixelmator, 1Password, and SaneBox. And we will see you all next time. Bye.